In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. So, hey, it, uh, it really happened. When it comes to sports, you see, I'm a bit of a pessimist. Especially when it comes to teams that have throughout basically my entire life been bad. So even though our guest two months ago told me that the Canadian men's team going to the World Cup was basically a done deal. I wasn't sure. I have seen lots of teams blow lots of leads. And it ain't over till it's over. And all of that. But now, you and I can exhale. It is done. Canada qualified for the World Cup. Not only did they qualify, they finished at the very top of their group. And so when the World Cup begins in Qatar in November, Canada will play in a group featuring Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco. It's real. If you missed our in-depth look at how this team got here, who they are, and what they mean to so many long-suffering soccer fans in this country, we're offering it up here again today. Mostly just so you can smile and soak it all in. And I can say... Watch out, world. Here comes Canada. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. John Molinero is one of the leading soccer journalists in Canada. He's covered the game for more than two decades, including at Sportsnet, at CBC Sports, and with Sun Media. He is currently the editor-in-chief of TFC Republic, a website dedicated to in-depth coverage of Toronto FC, and, of course... For the purposes of this conversation, the Canadian Soccer Program. Hey, John. Hey, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's nice to talk to you. Good to talk to you. John, how long have you been watching? I know you've been covering them for two decades now. How long have you been watching the Canadian men's soccer team? Uh, Pretty much since the 1980s. Um, Probably my first exposure would have been the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh, I can remember Canada competing in that tournament and you know, giving a really hard time to Brazil, uh, believe it or not. And, um, you know, that just sort of led to my sort of fascination with the team and obviously followed them quite closely at, uh, you know, the World Cup two years later in Mexico when they competed at uh, the World Cup for the first time. And then pretty much since then, I've just been steadily following them ever since. So that was the last time and the only time they were in the World Cup in 1986. During the period from 1986 to, I don't know, the last year or so, how has this team been perceived? And if not by you and the folks who really follow them closely, then by like Canadian sports fans and media in general, because I know, you know, our women's team has been so amazing over the past decade or two and not so much on the men's side. Yeah, I think it's a real coming of age for the men's team, because I think for the longest time, because they punch so below their weight for the lot for forever 
that there was a sense that, ah, it's the Canadian men's team. I mean, they're never going to do anything. And when you counterbalance that with, you know, how the Canadian women's team has been doing, uh, you know, over the last uh, decade or so, having a great deal of success, they were very much in the shadow of, of, of the women's side. And so I would suggest in the last, you know, four years, really, since, you know, coach John Herdman took over, it's been a complete turnabout. It's been 24 hours since a shocking announcement from the Canadian Soccer Association. John Herdman, the manager of the senior men's national team after managing James, the senior women's national team. Are you still shocked? I am, yeah. This is an absolute bombshell that's just rocked the, the foundations of, of Canadian soccer, let's be honest here. And he, it's been helped by breakout players such as Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David, who you know are playing at top clubs in, uh, in, in, in Europe and you know competing regularly in the UEFA Champions League. But it's also sort of the advancement of, you know, top MLS players like Jonathan Osario of TFC and Mark Anthony Kay of the Colorado Rapids, Samuel Piet of CF Montreal, Lucas Cavallini of Vancouver Whitecaps. I think you're seeing more and more, you know, players uh, domestic and abroad uh, who are, are Canadian who are really sort of, you know, coming into their own. And that's just led to this, you know, almost uh, this golden age of Canadian soccer where, you know, all these forces are combined together and the team is competing brilliantly. And I think, you know, certainly the the team's current run through the World Cup qualifiers has, has, you know, been a shot in the arm for the program. I don't think, you know, to be in first place after 10 games uh, without a loss, you know, to have beaten both the United States and Mexico, I don't think anyone, even the most optimistic Canadian fan, <laughs> would have figured that Canada would be you know, in this position this late in the game. So it's been an incredible metamorphosis of for the national team uh, on the men's side where, you know, where they were very much kind of an afterthought where to now they are very much, you know, uh, on everyone's uh, mind and, you know, everybody uh, seemingly wants a piece of them. We're going to talk about the team specifically in a moment because I'm, I'm going to get you to introduce some of these players and their makeup to uh, to us casual fans because there's a lot of people, I think, like me who have found themselves on the bandwagon over the past six months. But first, maybe looking back at that period when they were kind of wandering the wilderness, what was holding them back? Did they ever threaten to break through? Like, I'm trying to get a sense of were they just a bad team? Uh, did they consistently underperform their talent? Like, what was the problem with this club the past 15, 20 years? I think it's a combination of all those things. I mean, I think we have to be pretty blunt here and, and say, you know, and call it like it is and say that, you know, for the longest time, they simply weren't good enough. You know, it's only really in the last four or five years that we've seen top, you know, Canadian players at the very heights of MLS and really playing at the top teams in Europe. You know, previously you had the odd player, uh, you know, with a top European club, but there were very few and far between. And, and, Usually Canada had to, you know, fill its roster with um, very mediocre players, guys who weren't necessarily playing uh, for their pro sides. And oftentimes they would call in players who were out of, who didn't have pro teams, who were, Hmm. you know, who were often, uh, you know, unattached and in between sides and and not for like weeks, but like months on end. And so that wasn't unusual. So I think, you know, we've got to be pretty honest with ourselves and, and say that, you know, Canada wasn't very good for a very long time. It, it takes time for for players to really develop and to for a team like this to come together, and it you know it finally has obviously for for Canada. Was there a moment during the past? You mentioned four or five years as the program started to turn around. Was there a moment that you can put your finger on when you kind of felt like something has shifted here? There's real momentum. Something is tangibly getting better. Like what was your first hint that better days were really coming? 
Well, I look back to, um, you know, in ga- a game in uh, the summer of 2017 in Montreal when Canada played Curaçao. The shot from And this was when uh, Octavio Zambrano was still the coach of Canada. So he, he was the predecessor of John Herdman, who was hired in January of 2018. But when you look at that game uh, against Curaçao in Montreal... It was a winner from Jackson Hamel, and 2-1 is the final score. You know, that game marked the debut of Alfonso Davies. Mm. Uh, you had players like Mark anthony Kay and other youngsters uh, in the side as well in the program at the time. And I think that, you know, that sort of gave me a sense that, you know, things could sort of be on the up here. Um, you know, Davies was only 17 at the time and you could clearly see, you know, what a talent he was. And this was, this was when he was still in MLS. He hadn't made the move to the Bayern Munich, but you could just tell the talent that he had and that he was destined for greatness and destined for, for football beyond MLS. Canada won that game, wasn't particularly convincing, but you just saw, you know, buds. You saw sort of, you know, this could really blossom into something special, not just with Alfonso Davies, but just with, um, you know, many of the young players that they had in camp at the time. And I think it's come to pass. I mean, for me, that was really sort of the first instance where I thought it gave me hope that, you know, the program could start to turn around. And I think, you know, John Herdman coming in, uh, you know, six months later in January, that was another major turning point because he's, I think, completely changed, you know, this national, the, the Canadian men's team on so many levels in terms of, you know, philosophy, in terms of player recruitment, uh, in terms of preparation. He's really sort of gotten the best out of this team and, cha- and radically changed the culture from, uh, you know, an underachieving side to one that goes into every game confident that it can win. Tell me how that culture change happens, because this is something, you know, you and I used to work together at Sportsnet. This is something sports talking heads love to get into, but it really seems like something radically changed in terms of how Canadian soccer approaches matches. And in in any sport, the idea of going from perennially expected to lose or underachieve to going into matchups with the big guys expecting to win is a massive shift. How did Herdman do that? Well, a couple of different things. I think he, you know, when you talk to the to the current Canadian national team players who have been around and have played under different coaches, they will tell you that, uh, you know, in terms of preparation for matches and for, you know, long stretches of games that, you know, John Herdman has no equal. I mean, he is really sort of meticulous <laughs> to, to the point of ridiculousness. I mean, he'll, he'll want to research, you know, the route, the bus route that the team will take from uh, you know, the hotel to the stadium to, hmm. you know, travel uh, arrangements to the hotel to what they're eating. I mean, he leaves no stone unturned because he wants to sort of make sure that, you know, Canada is is best prepared in every facet. He doesn't want any sort of, you know, hiccups along the way. So there's a sense that he's sort of taking, going that extra step and taking extra care of of his players more so than any of his predecessors. And I think as a, res- as a result, his players have you know, responded in kind and given him a little bit more. I think the other thing is that, you know, he's really sort of beaten the bushes in terms of, um, you know, giving players chances who maybe are flying under the radar, bringing guys into the program who uh, have the option to play for other nations. Io Akinola is a great example. I mean, he's, you know, Detroit-born player who kind of grew up in Canada. He had the option to play for the U.S., 
but he chose to play internationally for Canada. And there's, you know, several different stories like that of guys committing to play for Canada. And it's because of Herdman, the way that he just sort of goes after these guys and recruits them. It gets into the head of the other players that look, hey, you know, before we were losing players to other countries. Now guys are, are, you know, wanting to play for Canada. They're actively choosing to play for Canada and turning down offers from other nations. It's really sort of led to this sense of self-belief that, yeah, they can compete against the base, best nations in CONCACAF. And I think we've seen that so far in this qualifying round where they've taken four out of six points against U.S. and they've taken four out of six points against Mexico, which you know would have been unheard of five years ago. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Tell me a little bit about the makeup of this team. I think uh, last weekend, well, there was all sorts of nastiness going on in Ottawa. One of the things that a lot of people noticed was the joy that these Canadian players took facing the U.S. and to see all of them belting out the national anthem. And what's the makeup like and and who are they? I know the goalie Milan Borian talked about being the child of immigrants and giving back to Canada. And like, it just seems like there's quite a multicultural vibe with them. Oh, absolutely. It's a very diverse uh, multi-ethnic group. When you have someone like Milan Borian, as you said, born in the former Yugoslavia, his family fled to to Belgrade during the Croatian War for Independence, you know, came to Canada when he was 13 years old, you know, first going to Winnipeg and then settling in Hamilton. If you ever see him at a game, he is just so passionate about representing Canada. And he talked about it after the win against the U.S. on the weekend about this is his way of giving back because, you know, the country give his family, you know, uh, a chance at living a peaceful, undisturbed life, more opportunities that he would have had in, uh, you know, where he grew up. And, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve and we, he made a fantastic save on Weston McKenney, the U.S. midfielder, right before halftime. McKenney, what a save by Milan Borjan. What a save by the goalkeeper. A brilliant save. And the first thing he did was, you know, beat his beat the his chest with the you know the Canadian flag on his jersey. And when he was speaking to media the other day after the game, it was with uh, you know a Canadian flag draped over his shoulders. Game, just unbelievable. This is uh, this team is something special. Uh, I mean, we're we're one step close, you know, to to making the the history of of Canada and uh, just like you know, and and that's not unique. I mean, you have someone like Alfonso Davies who. You know, we came here as a refugee um, with his family and settled in Edmonton and, you know, became one of the international soccer's biggest stars. And it's such a, you know, wonderful collection of players from diverse backgrounds and, and different ethnicities, but really competing as one nation, as one team. And it's, 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 it's interesting because they, one of the buzzwords in the Canadian camp, both from the coach John Herman and the players, is they talk about it being a brotherhood. You know, pretty much in every interview they talk about, they, you know, they've mentioned this idea of that, you know, they, they see themselves as brothers and that, you know, there's really, although they come from different backgrounds and different, 
you know, walks of life, that they are one and the same, that they are competing for one nation and one team. And I think that's that sort of attitude has really served them well. You've mentioned Alfonso Davies uh, a couple of times. And again, for casual fans, I'm going to ask you to tell me just how good he is and how he stacks up to the rest of the world. Because again, watching the game, you see people referring him to him as one of the greatest strikers on the planet. And that is not something I'm used to hearing about a Canadian men's soccer player. You know, we've been spoiled for for a couple of decades with Christine Sinclair on the women's side. Um, I personally would have never expected to see a Canadian stack up against the the greatest, you know, we're talking about Ronaldo and Messi and stuff here. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't put him in the same qual- uh, in the category of Messi and, and Ronaldo. I don't think anyone <laughs> would, would justifiably do that. But when you're talking about Alfonso Davies at 21 years old, you're talking about one of the top international young stars in the game. You know, he's probably top five in the world. And when you talk about his position as a left fullback, who, you know, who can also play further up front as an attacker, but he's widely regarded as one of the best left fullbacks, if not the best left fullback in the entire, you know, world soccer. And that's hmm. covering a lot of ground because you're talking about, you know, the top teams in Europe, you're talking about top teams in, in South America as well. And so you're quite right. It's pretty startling to think about that, you know, on the men's side, because we've never had a player of his sort of stature before. I mean, we've never, Canada has never had a player where they've been in the conversation as, you know, among the best players in the world at the time, and certainly not among, you know, the best of his respective position. Really, it really is an incredible story. As somebody who's used to disappointment from this Canadian men's national team, when I heard Alfonso Davies would miss this series of games uh, with myocarditis, I think I probably wasn't alone in in feeling a little bit of that familiar cynicism uh, come back, but but that didn't take place. What happened instead? Well, I, I appreciate that a lot of people were anxious when they heard that you know Alfonso Davies was going to miss these three games, and you know the the narrative was like, well, how are they going to cope without him? Here's another sports story we are watching. This is Canadian soccer superstar Alfonso Davies. He's now sidelined with a heart muscle inflammation stemming from a COVID-19 infection. His German club Bayern Munich says it's a mild infection, but. Davies will be out for at least several weeks while he recovers. The condition. Uh, I have to be honest. I wasn't terribly worried about it at all because um, this team is more than a one-man team. It's more than Alfonso Davies. Canada, you know, has they've never had this kind of overall quality and overall depth, really at every position. Losing Davies, look, you never want to lose your best player, uh, but it was hardly the death blow that everyone seemed to think it was. And you know, because they have players who can make up for him you know, in his absence. And, you know, when you look at recent history, um, you know, they've done well without him when they've had to play without him. Um, you know, last year they made it to the semifinals of the Gold Cup, you know, losing a heartbreaker to Mexico. And they did that both without Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David, one of their top forwards who were both injured. They missed the entire tournaments and they still went on to the semifinals. Last September, Davies picked up a, an injury, a knee injury in the second half of a World Cup qualifier against uh, the United States in Nashville and Canada went on to win, or sorry, Canada went on to draw that game 1-1. He was ruled out for the home game in Toronto three days later against El Salvador uh, with the knee injury and Canada comfortably ran out, you know, three nothing winners. So they have proven that they can win without him. Um, obviously they want to have him on the lineup because he's just such a dangerous player and he's such a dynamic attacker who can really, uh, you know, unbalance opposing players, but they have such depth and quality in every position now they can withstand the absence of, you know, a key starter like Alfonso Davies. 
So tonight, the third and final game of this qualifying window, uh, Canada is against El Salvador. You mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation that they are on the cusp of qualifying for the World Cup in Qatar. Um, Can they do that tonight? Just how close are they? How big is this game? Yeah, it's a pretty big game. They can sort of qualify tonight, um, but it's, you know, they would have to win and plus they would need results in the three other games to go their way, um, including Honduras, last place Honduras winning uh, in Minneapolis against the United States. And <laughs> I really, I really can't see that happening because right. the, U- the U.S. is going to, you know, Honduras is so playing so poorly right now. And I don't think the U.S. is going to open the door for them. But they are well-placed to qualify for the World Cup. It'll happen, if not this round, then in the final slate of games in March. Uh, you know, they're sitting top of the group. You know, frankly, it would take a collapse of major proportions for them not to qualify for the World Cup. It's it's, it's far more difficult them for them right now not to qualify than it would be to qualify. Assuming this holds up and they make it to Qatar, I mean, that's a victory in itself, obviously, first World Cup in uh, almost 30 years. But... Is it fair to expect more from them than just getting there? Can they put a scare into any of the traditionally top teams in the world? Well, it's difficult to say for for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, I'll answer it two ways. Yes, on the on the one hand, it, it I think it's reasonable to expect that they can sort of cause a bit of a stir. I mean, I wouldn't suggest that they're going to go to the finals or the or, or the semifinals or even the quarterfinals, but you know giving sort of top teams a bit of a scare and coming out of the group might not be an unreasonable expectation just the way that they're playing right now. It's such a a brilliant, you know, attacking team with, you know, a pretty solid defense. And then with Milan Borian, I think he's one of the best international goalkeepers going right now. So I think we would be right to have expectations for them to, to go to Qatar and not just show up and to sort of, you know, do something, go on a bit of a run. On the other hand, you know, they're going to be playing the top teams in Europe, top teams in South America. Mm-hmm. You know, the field for the for the World Cup hasn't even been completely filled out right now. Right now. There are still teams going through the qualifiers, so we don't even know all who all is going to be there. And plus, the luck of the draw, um, you know, can, goes a long way in determining uh, right. a, a World Cup team's fate. So it's, it's far too early, I would suggest, to sort of get into this sort of discussions about, you know, whether they can do anything or not. I mean, if you're, if you're about, if you're sort of just going on, you know, how they're doing thus far, then sure. I think it's reasonable to have expectations, but on the, at the same time, just because of how, you know, the, the field is looking right now, it's not even complete. I think we'd be getting ahead of ourselves, you know, making any sort of bold predictions. Last question and world cup results aside. What does this run mean for the game in Canada, for kids playing soccer in Canada? I mean, shoot, even for for folks like you who have been so passionately covering this team for 20 years, like how big is this for the sport in general here? Uh, it's massive on, on a lot of fronts. I mean, you know, for for in terms of the, the actual state of the game, I don't think you can overstate how big of a recruitment driving force this is. When you look at the women's side, know they've had a great deal of success at the olympics obviously it's what it what it's done for women participation in this in in this country has been immense i mean young girls are choosing to play soccer because of you know they can watch players like christine sinclair and it's you talk to sort of current young members of the canadian national team and they will tell you that they were inspired watching christine sinclair you know winning a bronze medal at london or, or rio and now they are teammates with Christine Sinclair. So you can't sort of overestimate how big the influence is of, you know, a winning program and how, what it means for, 
you know, inspiring a new generation of young girls. And I think we're going to see, you know, similarly do the same thing on the men's side. I mean, a lot of, you know, when they come into their teenage years, they have to sort of make a decision whether they're going to go with hockey or where they're going to go with soccer. And usually hockey wins out. Uh, I suspect that, you know, if, if Canada get to the World Cup and, you know, Canadian sort of teenagers and boys can see a Canadian team playing at the World Cup, you know, the biggest sporting event on the planet, it's going to be massive. You know, it'll really drive up uh, participation numbers and it will really inspire, you know, the next generation of, of children, uh, you know, to pick up the sport. In terms of, you know, media coverage and whatnot and, you know, long-suffering reporters like myself who have covered the team, it's also big. I mean, this is a team that has struggled to gain a foothold into the sporting sort of consciousness of, of, of the country for the long time. Uh, and now, you know, um, with them being on the cusp of qualifying, they're getting a lot of sort of love from media and, and, and recognition and coverage. And rightly so Um, it's, you know, it's an amazing story. So I can't even imagine, you know, what the coverage is going to be like, should they qualify when they qualify for Qatar. I think it's just going to go through the roof. And you have to remember too, that Canada is set to co-host the world cup in four years time in 2026. Right. And so this is, you know, this is going to be a massive boost for, for the sport. John, thank you so much for this. Uh, really enlightening for me as a casual fan. And enjoy the game tonight and enjoy the rest of this run wherever it takes the team. Cheers, Jordan. Good to talk to you. John Molinero is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of TFC Republic, which you can find at tfcrepublic.ca. You'll find TFC stuff there, but also extensive coverage of this Canadian men's team's unbelievable run. That was The Big Story. You can find more from us, of course, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And you can find us via email, thebigstorypodcast, that's all one word, at rci.rogers.com. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.